Welcome everybody. This is the People's School for Marxist Leninist Studies. Tonight's reading is going to be a continuation of what we did last week. We started Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran and Thomas Kenny. Last week we went over the three delineations of Soviet ideology around the start of the revolution, those being the philosophies of Trotsky, Stalin, and Bukharin. It's about a 300-page book, so we can't really do it justice, but what we've done is gather some excerpts from the latter half of the book, and we're fast-forwarding from the 20s all the way to the mid to the late 80s. Excerpts from Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran and Thomas Kenny. Gorbachev and his defenders said that he inherited a society in crisis. This was false. In any conventional sense, the Soviet Union had not sunk into the throes of a crisis. In 1985, its economic problems did not approach the inflation and instability of Germany in the 1920s or the depression in the United States in the 1930s. Moreover, its political problems fell far short of a crisis of legitimacy. Complaints about shortages, waiting lines, and the quality of consumer goods occurred, but little popular discontent with the system itself existed. Discontent arose as a product, not a cause, of the reform. Personal consumption of Soviet citizens had increased between 1975 and 1985, even though the Soviet standard of living reached only one-third to one-fifth of the American level, a general appreciation existed that Soviet citizens enjoyed greater security, lower crime, and a higher cultural and moral level than the citizens in the West did. Moreover, empirical studies in the mid-1980s revealed that Soviet and American workers expressed about the same degree of satisfaction with their jobs. As late as 1990, only a small minority favored a transition to a capitalist system. Barely 4% of Soviet citizens favored the removal of price controls, and only 18% favored the encouragement of private property. As early as 1983, Gorbachev had made it clear that he favored reform. In December 1984, in a speech to an ideological conference of the Central Committee, he called for glasnost, openness, in public communications, and perestroika, restructuring, of the economic system. In 1989-91, to 91, the final three years of perestroika, after having triumphed over his opponents, Gorbachev remade the Soviet Union in five crucial ways. First, he ended the leading role and monopoly position of the CPSU, changing it to a parliamentary party. Secondly, he undermined central planning and public ownership. He pushed the CPSU out of economic management while searching for a transition to a market economy. He began privatizing state-owned enterprises and encouraged the burgeoning second economy. Third, he surrendered to the United States on a range of foreign policy issues and eventually sought an outright alliance with imperialism. Fourth, he allowed the glasnost media to remake Soviet ideology and culture. Fifth, always baffled by the national question, he tried repression against Baltic separatists and then flip-flopped to negotiations in an ultimately fruitless search for a new basis for the Union of Republics. In Perestroika's last years, economic forces on the dark side of Soviet society demanded legitimacy and power. The black market and the Russian mob multiplied like vermin. The private enterprise bogus quote-unquote co-ops grew. The ambitions and acquisitive backers of Boris Yeltsin lobbied for a drastic shift to radical marketization. If the market replaced the plan and if Yeltsin privatized the Russian economy, high officials, directors of enterprises, and managers could look forward to, quote, unprecedented wealth. The dominant sections of the party and state leadership could easily see which way the wind was blowing. 
corrupt elements of the leadership began embezzling state and party property and transforming it into their own private property. In the bewildering last years of perestroika, the Soviet people grew to hate Gorbachev and to treat him with scorn, frantically racing to quell one crisis here while another broke out there, Gorbachev cut a pitiable figure. A magician who had run out of tricks, he had few friends other than the Western media and government. In late 1991, even his false friends in the American White House abandoned him. Gorbachev's degeneration from a communist to a social democrat was stark. His illusions about where events were heading were laughable. In May 1990, he gave an interview to Time magazine that took the measure of his, quote, internal political revolution, end quote, answering the questions, what does it mean to be a communist today, and what will it mean in the years to come? Gorbachev replied, to be a communist as I see it means not to be afraid of what is new, to reject obedience to any dogma to think independently, to submit one's thoughts and actions to the test of morality and through political action, to help working people realize their hopes and aspirations and live up to their abilities. I believe that to be a communist today means, first of all, to be consistently democratic and to put universal human values above everything else. As we dismantle the Stalinist system, we are not retreating from socialism, but we are moving towards it. I'm going to be referring from a magazine called Soviet Life that was put out an agreement with the United States. I think it was from the Khrushchev period, where the United States put out a magazine called America in Russian language that the Russian people can read and the Soviets put out a magazine called Soviet Life. It still exists, but it's called Russian Life now. It's not the same kind of thing. In it, it has articles by Gorbachev. This article I'm reading from is called Perestroika, a program of reform. Let me just tell you as a historian, every reformist movement in history, if it succeeds, it destroys the entity that it wants to reform. The Protestant Reformation is the best example. Any kind of reform is really out to destroy the thing it's against. In that case, it was the rule of the Roman Catholic Church in Germany. The other thing I wanted to mention is whenever you hear the word dogmatic, be wary. It's usually somebody, usually, geared by people who want to get away from Marxism-Leninism. They may not realize it, but they're calling for prescriptions against that. And I want to mention that, that I'm going to be referring to that because it's very eye-opening what he says at the time. Where Gorbachev says that to be a communist today means, first of all, to be consistently democratic and to put universal human values above everything else. I think right there with the universal human values above everything else, we see the true individualist and opportunist nature of Gorbachev because he is not seeing this from a class analysis where class is prime, where serving the workers is prime. Rather, it's this bourgeois liberal notion of what human values are. And of course, being bourgeois, it is not meant to serve the people. And I just found this to be very frustrating because I was not aware of these statements and learning about them is very disheartening. When you talk about a quote when they're talking about his transition from communist to social democrat, as someone who studied like a bit of social democrat governments over the last 30 or so years, this is very similar to all of them who have abandoned their already weak position on socialism or the class struggle. You could take that last block of quote that Gorbachev spoke. You switch around a couple words, and it's almost the same thing that Tony Blair might say or something like that, or, you know, people in the Democrat Party who are moving it further and further to the right from its already retreated position. So to hear a leader of the most important communist party 
spout words like this and talk about transforming it, it's no wonder that a year after this interview, the whole system, we'll get to that in a bit. What caused the Soviet collapse? Our thesis is that the economic problems, external pressure, and political and ideological stagnation challenging the Soviet Union in the early 1980s, alone or together, did not produce the Soviet collapse. Instead, it was triggered by the specific reform policies of Gorbachev and his allies. In 1987, Gorbachev turned his back on the reform course initiated by Yuri Andropov, the path Gorbachev himself had followed for two years. He took up new policies that replaced in an extreme way the Khrushchev policies of 1953 to 64, and even further back, the ideas espoused by Bukharin in the 1920s. Gorbachev's about-face was made possible by the growth of the second economy that provided a social basis for anti-socialist consciousness. Gorbachev's revisionism routed its opponents and went on to discard essential tenets of Marxism-Leninism, class struggle, the leading role of the party, international solidarity, and the primacy of collective ownership and planning. Soviet foreign policy retreats and the evisceration of the CPSU soon resulted. The latter process occurred with the party's surrender of the mass media, the unraveling of central planning mechanisms, and resulting economic decline, and the end of the party's role in harmonizing the constituent nations of the USSR. Mass discontent enabled the Yeltsin anti-communist, quote, Democrat, to capture control of the giant Russian Republic and to begin to impose capitalism there. Separatists won out in the non-Russian Republic. The USSR fell apart. The Soviet collapse was not inevitable. No basis exists for the conclusion trumpeted in the corporate media that Soviet socialism was doomed from the start, that all socialist states are doomed, that in the end, Marx was wrong and human history ends with liberal capitalism. Gorbachev's policies may not have been inevitable, but they were no accident either. Powerful internal and external forces sustained the revisionism that came to power with Gorbachev. Those forces, the internal legal and illegal private enterprise and its associated corruption, the external aggressiveness and militarism of the United States, as well as a resurgent free market ideology, had grown stronger in the decades before 1985. Soon, Gorbachev would unleash the internal forces and accommodate the external ones. The Gorbachev program after 1986, above all, its core commitment to reducing the influence of the CPSU, reflected Gorbachev's determination to learn from what he saw as Khrushchev's failure to deal decisively with his opponents in the party. Though Gorbachev's revisionism had a long gestation in the CPSU politics and in Soviet society, the Soviet collapse was not foreordained. There were many points in the previous 35 years where developments could have headed in another direction. The strongest argument for this belief is that the CPSU had defeated the opportunism of Nikolai Bukharin in the late 1920s when its class roots were also strong, when an immense peasant majority surrounded the working class state. In the 1950s, the Soviet Union, no longer encircled and invaded, could have entered a less repressive post-Stalin era without making Khrushchev's many blunders of theory and policy. Such critics of the Khrushchev policies, such as Vyacheslav, Molotov, offered an alternative political course. Those critics were defeated. In the politically stagnant second half of the Brezhnev era, the leaders might have carried on a better fight against growing negative trends, in particular the second economy and corruption. Yuri Andropov, had he lived to evaluate the results of his first reforms, might have sharpened his analysis and made the reform process deeper and broader. 
even in the perestroika era, the problematic direction policies took after 1986 was not a certainty, either in the leadership as a whole or in Gorbachev's own mind. That the tendency that Bukharin, Khrushchev, and Gorbachev represented kept reasserting itself and finally won bears witness to its stubborn material roots. No longer in the peasant outlook so tenacious in the first revolutionary decades, but in the spreading commercialism and crime of the second economy. When did the second economy first emerge in the Soviet Union? The second economy, believe it or not, grew quickly during the period that's called the golden age of Soviet socialism. Golden age, which lasted from the beginning of the Brezhnev period to almost the end of the Brezhnev period. It was called the golden age of Soviet socialism. And I lived there at that point, at that period. And that's when the people were very much into material goods. Things were being produced, TV sets, radios, Private property, a person's apartment became very important to them. They would buy rugs and put them on the wall. That's the custom. And every time you have a second economy and the standard of living gets better, you seem to have that side effect. Now, remember, Cuba has a second economy. I don't know if people realize that. It started with the Obama administration, where the peso had two values. For the Cuban people, it was one, and for the Cubans who ran away from the country and settled in the United States, they came back to Cuba to see their relatives, and they were able to use their money differently than the average Cuban, so it became a second economy. And every time you have a second economy, you seem to have that. Gorbachev wrote memoirs, him and his wife. They regretted that they spent so many years in the party that they should have started these reforms many years earlier. That's what he regretted. Had no regrets about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In his memoirs, him and his wife, Raisa, who passed away from cancer, said that they had been social democrats while he was the leader of the Soviet Communist Party, the both of them. Now, she graduated, listen to this, from the Moscow Institute on Marxism-Leninism, <laughs> and she got her degree in Marxism-Leninism, and then they wrote this book in 1998 or something, in which they said they were never Marxist-Leninists. So you have to question, how did these people get to the top of the heap? What would be the principled way to prevent such a second economy from happening in the first place? What's mm -hmm. interesting is, for example, they produce X numbers of TVs. There is a list. You get on the list. When the TV comes out, you get to get the TV. If the labor power that goes into it costs $100, they sell the TV for $20, which is very cheap. The profits from the rest go back into the economy to subsidize housing, transportation, education, Food, everything was subsidized under socialism. But it had to come from somewhere. So the question is, how did this thing develop? There is a factory producing the televisions, and I've seen this, by the way. Someone who works in the factory would put a TV in their trunk of the car, go somewhere where he may have made connections. This is what we call the black market, and would sell the TV for $45, he would put the rest of it in his pocket. He had stolen the TV. He was a manager or someone who worked at the TV factory. That's what the second economy was based on the black market. So you would get the TV very quickly. You wouldn't have to wait for it. And you're paying a little bit more, but the money and everything doesn't go back into the economy. It goes into the individual's hands. I can give an example off the top of my head. I'm familiar with what Cuba does. Right now, with the rise of the Internet and everything involved with it, there's a lot of people who 
are starting to create their own internet in Cuba, and the authorities fully know that this is going on, but there's a lot of communication between the authorities and the people who are involved. And it's with trends like that that the police and the socialist state try to keep up on, and in a way, they try to minimize the extent to which these type of practices can propagate because on this internet that's being created in Cuba, which is outside of the state-built internet, people are buying and selling things. So what they're trying to do, from the way that I understand it, I don't know if they're seizing any equipment or anything like that, but they are keeping tabs on everyone involved with it. So how they're doing it there is that they're trying to be mindful and trying to watch and see where it goes because it's not actually allowed to go anywhere beyond that because I think in Cuba you're allowed to sell your personal items, but they're trying to prevent it from actually becoming businesses. The second economy, are we talking about the middle class? Where does the middle class get in? Is there a middle class during this time? There was no middle class in the Soviet Union. Middle class was a product, as this magazine says, in a positive way. It was a product of the socialist market. The socialist market. That's what they were saying. It was a product of that. And it didn't happen before then. This magazine is 1987, almost at the end of the whole thing. And I'm going to quote this. One can say with assurance that the transition period will not be easy for the Soviet economy. There will be many heated discussions. The debates will, of course, transcend national boundaries, especially on such themes as the role and the importance of the socialist market economy. Angelo could even tell you when he was in the Soviet Union, a lot of the young people, what they were doing, there was a black market of selling jeans, blue jeans. That was the big hot thing for the young people in the Soviet Union to get the blue jeans that were hot then. Fidel Castro made a speech on December 7, 1989, titled Socialism or Death, in which he put capitalism, its market economy, its values, its categories, and its methods can never pull socialism out of its present difficulties or rectify whatever mistakes have been made. The entire history of Soviet socialism shows that the class struggle, the struggle to abolish classes, does not end with the seizure of state power and does not end even after 70 years of building socialism. Although, in truth, the USSR actually had far less than seven decades to build socialism, since it had to devote so much time to preparing for wars, fighting wars, and recovering from them. Indeed, the whole idea that the class struggle is over in a world still dominated by capitalism and imperialism, or within the socialist state, is itself a manifestation of the class struggle at an ideological level. Succumbing to that idea is one of the gravest threats to building socialism. In many ways, the most disturbing aspect of the Soviet collapse was not that Gorbachev's opportunism arose within the Soviet Communist Party. What was disturbing was that the Communist Party proved unable to thwart Gorbachev's opportunism as it had thwarted that of his forerunners. Why was the CPSU less able to deal with Gorbachev in 1987 and 1988 than with Khrushchev in 1964 or Bukharin in 1929? In part, the party lacked the vigilance and will to suppress the second economy and attendant party and government corruption. The party became too lax about its membership, opening its door too widely, particularly to non-workers. Democratic centralism had deteriorated. Ties between the party and the working class through the trade unions, Soviets, and other mechanisms ossified. Criticism and self-criticism withered. Collective leadership weakened. Party unity 
and defending the leader's line evidently became the supreme virtues. Ideological development waned, the ideological mistakes of Khrushchev and the divergence of ideology from reality in many areas persisted. In many respects, ideology became complacent, formalized, and ritualistic. As a result, ideology repelled many of the best and brightest. Many top leaders were insufficiently alert to the meaning and danger of opportunism. In short, the party itself needed reform. If the century just ended is a guide to the present one, socialist revolutions will face many of the challenges similar to those faced in the Soviet Union. They will likely be victorious first in countries where class struggle and the national liberation struggle intersect. Where 20th century socialism has so far survived, in China, Cuba, North Korea, and Vietnam, the overlay of class and national contradictions that led to revolution helps to sustain the commitment to socialism. If so, socialist states will come into being with support not only from the workers, but also from peasants and other middle strata. Therefore, the same or kindred political conditions and problems as those arising in the Soviet Union are likely to recur in new revolutions. Imperialism will continue to attack its ideologues invoking, quote, democracy, and the boogeyman of, quote, Stalinism at every step. Lenin said, quote, the commune taught the European proletariat to pose concretely the tasks of socialist revolution, end quote. The Soviet experience extended these tasks. Our analysis implies that socialism's adherents must re-emphasize right opportunism as a crucial category for Marxist-Leninist political thought. It was so in the days when Marx and Engels criticized the Gotha program, when Lenin castigated the Second International, and when the CPSU majority defeated Bukharin. Communists define right opportunism in essence as an unnecessary and unprincipled retreat under the pressure of a class adversary. In any struggle, retreats are sometimes necessary. So the question of necessity always hinges on the actual balance of forces and a realistic assessment of conditions on whether a retreat lays the groundwork for a later advance or whether it is just an easy way out. Communists call a theoretical justification of unnecessary retreat revisionism. In the context of building socialism, right opportunism usually takes the form of an accommodation rather than struggle with capitalism, domestic and foreign. It also sometimes appears as an advocacy of, quote, respecting realities rather than struggling to change them, a one-sidedly evolutionary approach to building socialism and a yielding to objective circumstances. It seeks a quick and easy route to socialism by the path of least resistance. This habit of thought tends to overestimate the automatic, spontaneous nature of the process of creating the new system and to overemphasize the buildup of productive forces as key to socialism's development while downplaying the need to perfect the relations of production, that is, the struggle to eliminate classes. Quick recommendation to go visit People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies part four of the history of the American communist movement, because part four deals with the CPUSA during the perestroika period and what was going on. And I highly recommend those who haven't listened to it to go take a listen. About the class character of Khrushchev's revisionist positions, because usually when we talk about right deviationism, in Marxist-Leninist texts, we say that it's a petty bourgeois tendency that breaks with the proletarian line. So I was wondering if that also applies to the policies of like Khrushchev and his allies during that period, or if it was a faulty proletarian line, or if it had some other class character that we could define. Right opportunism and ultra-leftism are product of the petty bourgeois, and under imperialism, especially in Russia, their capitalism was not as developed, but their petty bourgeois was exemplified as 
explained by Lenin by the Mensheviks, who were a more homogenous group as opposed to the other petty bourgeois groups in the West. And so under imperialism, out of the super profits, a greater extent of these petty bourgeois individuals are maintained. But during the growth of capital, the petty bourgeois are also crushed by finance capital. And in the decay, the petty bourgeois must enter the ranks of the proletariat, and with them, they bring their petty bourgeois ideology. So the lingerings of the petty bourgeois ideology, which were exemplified by Bukharin, Trotsky, explains why they had ultra-leftist and right-opportunist deviations in their line of thinking. But to explain Khrushchev, I think you have to look at the broader international situation as well as the historical product of right opportunism in the CPSU. This reading has been, at least for me, really impactful. I believe regarding China, I think that there's been a lot of discussion within this piece that's relevant to what we're seeing in the People's Republic of China presently in terms of, at least for me, the last paragraph where it talks about going by the path of least resistance. And I worry that we, throughout this piece, have seen how the building of a second economy and different social strata, instead of just focusing particularly on the working class and even the peasant allies, but incorporating bourgeois elements, produces a really dangerous situation where those elements produce their own power, their own bases, ideology, and that begins to infect the party. Now, I don't necessarily think that China is fully capitalist, like some leftists might say. I think that they're socialists going down a revisionist path. But nonetheless, we see where that path leads in the dissolution of the USSR. And seeing a counter-hegemony to the West fall apart, I think, would be very devastating for the world. I want to start with a Castro quote from Socialism or Death, which is the same source that Conrad pulled that excellent quote from on market socialism. Castro said, can socialism be improved by forsaking Marxism-Leninism's most basic principles? Why must the so-called reforms be along capitalist lines? If those ideas are truly revolutionary, as some claim, why do they receive the imperialist leaders' unanimous enthusiastic support? And I think those are great questions from Castro. Now, this quote specifically is about uh, Gorbachev's reforms, but I think the application can be much broader than that and can apply to many different situations where socialist countries have taken the capitalist road for one reason or another, as opposed to the road towards socialism. And the second thing I want to say is that Gorbachev was an inevitability after the Khrushchev coup that took place after Stalin's death, putting the revisionist Khrushchev in power. And I think this is why anti-revisionism is so important, because we owe it to the international world communist movement to maintain a revolutionary line, especially here in the belly of the beast in the United States. And we can't forget that, as was pointed out in the reading, that class struggle doesn't end under socialism. It intensifies. Lenin himself said that in a speech to railroad workers. In the final three and a half decades of the USSR's existence, the more market relations and other reforms were introduced, officially and legally in several reform waves, Khrushchev, Kasigan, and Gorbachev, and quietly, steadily and often illegally through the spreading second economy, the more long-term economic growth rates came down. The fastest Soviet growth rates ever achieved came in the 1929 to 53, when the Soviet leadership firmly upheld central planning and suppressed the market relations formerly tolerated in the NEP of 1921 to 29. At the risk of a tedious simile, the two systems are like a river raft and an airplane. With capitalism, the river raft, the Pullman who steers the raft merely has to avoid shoals, rapids, and waterfalls. Mostly, the flow of the current downriver controls the pace and direction of the raft. It is a simple and mostly automatic system. Only loose supervision is required. Big blunders are usually not fatal. An airplane, socialism, is a far more superior mode of transportation. Its range, its freedom of direction and maneuver, and its speed far exceed that of the river raft. But 
the airplane requires conscious application of the laws of physics and aerodynamics, forethought, planning, science, training, ground crews, radar, and so on. It is a complex system requiring a massive social division of labor. Managing the system, its piloting, the subjective aspect of its steering, is far more crucial to the safe operation of this mode of transportation than is the case with the river raft. Big blunders in piloting a plane, though rare, are often fatal. There is a smaller margin for error. The fact that airplanes sometimes crash does not prove the superiority of the river raft. It is only an argument for better engineered, better piloted, safer airplanes. The laws of socialist construction differ from the laws of capitalist development. Capitalism's laws operate blindly, without consciousness, like the law of gravity that sends the river raft downstream, no matter what the pole man is doing. But socialism's laws, while objective, require an airplane whose designers consciously master and use the laws governing such forces as gravity, thrust, lift, and drag, and a pilot skillful in the technique and grounded in the underlying science. Therefore, a Gorbachev leadership could do far more damage to socialism than an even more blundering Hoover did to U.S. capitalism. As a Soviet scholar said, the economic laws of socialism, quote, cease to be a spontaneously, anarchically operating force and are consciously applied by society in its self-interest, end quote. Ignoring the economic laws of socialism, quote, leads to the emergence of difficulties and disproportions and imbalance in the economy and weakens coordination of the actions and camaraderie cooperation of social groups and bodies of workers. This is the best book I've ever read in my life on the issues of opportunism and how it develops. It was written by Gus Hall, 1972. The Social Democrats at the CPUSA have copyright status to this. And I don't see how they could ever come out with this again because it's our position, not theirs. It's a position of not, not to accommodate with capitalist force in any way. And they are doing that with the Democratic Party. This book is called Imperialism Today. An Evaluation of Major Issues and Events of Our Time. This was so prophetic. I find this exceedingly easy to read. I think people should try to get this book, especially the chapter on how to fight opportunism. And the word is accommodation that was mentioned before in the book by Socialists Betrayed. We cannot allow the virus of accommodation to enter our party. It will destroy us. This illusion of the classless path, this is exactly what Gorbachev was talking about. And Gussol talks about it in 1972. That's like more than 10 years, 13 years, before Gorbachev came along with this. I like the words he uses. Are there not now illusions, illusions about, quote, classless, unquote, paths to social progress. Are there not groups within the revolutionary spectrum that deliberately, deliberately sidestep the class struggle? Are there not old theories like Bukharanism in new dress that deny the revolutionary role of who? The working class. Are there not pseudo-fake revolutionary middle-class theories whereby the peasants, the peasants are presented as the vanguard of the revolutionary process? I thought that was interesting. Is it not the concept of a classless leadership? And he brings up this whole thing. This book was written in 72, but it's told what happened in China. And what happened with Gorbachev 13 years later?
The book I want to recommend is very important. It's one of the greatest works of Karl Marx, Das Kapital. This is the first communist book my father ever got me. I'm still reading it, but it gives a nice explanation and understanding between use value and exchange value. And we can't forget that a socialist society, it must be based on use value, not exchange value. This needs to be the foundation of a socialist society. And if we want to build socialism, then we need to read this and understand this book. Comrade Angela said earlier there was no Soviet middle class, but to my mind, I look at the Soviet Union and I see people that at least I would identify as middle class workers, as sort of nurses, academics. What am I misunderstanding here about what the middle class is? I'm glad you brought that up. The definition of a middle class, according to Marx, is different than according to non-Marxist economists. Our definition of middle class as followers of Marx is very simple. Another word for middle class is small capitalists. In French, it's petite bourgeois. This term bourgeois had to come from French history because it's a French word. It wasn't a Russian word. It's a French word. The bourgeoisie, the capitalist. The petit bourgeoisie is the small capitalist. What is the definition of a small capitalist? My understanding is that if they're not connected to the means of production directly, like the workers are, or what we call the proletariat, which is the factory workers, if they're not connected directly to the means of production, and they're basically entrepreneurs, they are small capitalists. If a doctor works for a hospital and gets paid by wages for a hospital, that doctor is a member of the working class, even though he makes 200000 a year. has nothing to do with the amount of money you make. So it has to do with where you are in society. In the Soviet Union, there was no entrepreneurs, period, except those that were on the black market. They were basically entrepreneurs, making money for themselves. But there was no entrepreneurs in the Soviet Union until 1991 or 92. And today they're all over the place, of course, in capitalist Russia. So that's the term that we use. People in this country use the term how much you make. And that's not the definition, according to Marx and Marxist economists, of what a middle class is. So these are, our, in the American context, the much-lauded small business owners. Exactly. In America, they go by how much you make. So you own your own candy store, but you make 20000 a year. That person is petite bourgeois, middle class because of where they are in relation to the means of production, which is the factories, the natural resources, the labor power, all that is part of the means of production. And you don't have that if you own a candy store and you're making 20000 a year. Now, you could be a worker working at a plant making 80000 a year. That doesn't mean that you are middle class and that the guy that makes 20000 is not middle class. The guy who makes 20000 owns his own business, entrepreneur. He's middle class. The other one isn't. He works for wages. He's selling his labor power. I'm a freelance web developer. Technically, I own a business, but it's just me. Does that make me a part of the petty bourgeois as well? According to that definition, definitely. Many people on the left, especially the Internet generation, make money, and that becomes their job and their sole means of support for themselves. Now, remember, it doesn't mean that you are negative or positive. It just means that's where you are at. There are few members of the middle class who have joined the working class. There are some members of the bourgeoisie who joined the working class. I mean, the best-known example is Engels best-known example. But by and large, those are exceptions to the rule. The part of the reading 
where it talked about the overemphasis on the development of the productive forces and the underemphasis on the relations of production. You know, I know there's a lot of young people on the phone right now, and there's a lot of people on the internet who, in their analysis of China contemporarily, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. With these people on the internet that make their bread and butter off of defending the current economics of China, not the politics of China, not the political system of China, the economics of China, I'm asking the question, how often do these people talk about Bukharin? Question mark. How often do they bring up perestroika? Question mark. How often do they talk about the relations of production as opposed to the development of the productive forces? Question mark. How often do they talk about the comparisons between implementations of markets in the Soviet Union and the implementations of markets in China? Question mark. Those are questions I think people need to consider, to wrestle with, and to evaluate because a lot of the times people can seek for an easy answer, and when the easy answer appears, that becomes the philosophy. And we have to start with Marxism, Leninism. We have to start with the ideology, and then analyze the conditions through the ideology. So I want people to think about those questions. China, it's market socialism. They try to argue that they are in the NEP stage and that they will not reach socialism until 2030 or 2040. But one thing that China has done is, for example, its large arms industry. Instead of supporting socialist nations defending themselves like Cuba or North Korea, they have armed countries that are not only not socialist or not even revisionist, but reactionary, such as Iran and Saudi Arabia with their high-effect weaponry. They've given economic aid to those countries, whereas countries like the DPRK and Cuba, Laos, etc., they get crumbs from the cake. So I wanted that to be known that there is even a market incentive in their military foreign policy. That's very similar to the late stages of Lenin when Bukharin was influential. There were a lot of relationships with the Ford company and how they built their military infrastructure by having economic relations with the West in the early Soviet Union. So I think that's what the comrade was earlier speaking was fantastic. And I think you really need to research the NEP and how it had its detrimental effects and how China's current socialism with Chinese characteristics is a continuation of the failures of the NEP and not its successes. As a historian, I want to tell people primary sources are the best. Primary sources means the sources that were written at the time of the period that we're studying in history. That's called a primary source. So if you're studying about the American Revolution, you have to go back to stuff that was written at that period, and there's a lot about it. If you're studying about perestroika, you've got to go to the beginning of that. Don't necessarily take the words of people who are writing about it. Now, this book, I happen to think, is really fascinating because it goes and takes research and buttresses its argument. But I want to read, I specifically saved all my copies of Soviet Life. This is from October 1987. Listen to this. In the June issue of Soviet Life, I reported that a state enterprise Bill, B-I-L-L, regarded as the starting point for the reforms, had been submitted for public discussion. This summer, that bill became law. So now the next read down. What is the law? All material production will shift to a new system within two years. Without going over these principles again, it's worth recalling their substance. Above all, enterprises cease to be state-supported. I'll repeat it. Enterprises, factories, will cease to be state-supported. Therefore, how are they going to be supported? Well, this next sentence tells you. Their only source of revenue is their own earnings. 
merges and the creation of joint production facilities and technological research centers on a shared basis are allowed. Only new large enterprises will be built at state expense, which means other enterprises will be built with individual earnings. What do we call that? That's the beginning of something. Relations with the state accept the targets for state orders whose range will gradually narrow. In other words, the Ministry of Industry says, we need X numbers of shoes. Well, that's going to be getting rid of. That was the basis of the Soviet economy, if you all remember, comrades. Things will be determined by budgetary profit deductions. A payment of resources and other economic levers that the enterprise, the factory, is aware of in advance and that it's fixed for a number of years. That says everything, that each factory now, under these new reforms that Gorbachev was pushing, that Khrushchev started, and it failed. Under Khrushchev, comrades, it was called, I believe the word is Lieberman. The Lieberman reforms failed because Khrushchev was out and Brezhnev was in, and the first thing they did under Brezhnev was get rid of those reforms. So they failed. Now they want to bring them back a second time. This is important because it says, this is the same article that says, we need to have a socialist market economy. Well, now we can look back to see who was in power when this was started. What party? The Soviet Communist Party. They were in power, and they started this. The difference between what's going on then and what's going on in Vietnam and China now is a qualitative difference. So I think it's clear that we have to understand that the primary sources were written, which give all this information down. And I wanted to end it with that. The questions you're going to have to ask yourself is how was this allowed? How did the communist parties become involved with spreading perestroika? And the working class had no input into it. Zero. Those are questions you're going to have to ask yourself. So with that, I want to thank everybody. Good night, comrade. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at NewOutlookPublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit PeopleSchool.org to sign up for free classes.